Hello, and welcome to day 30 of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to be reading the whole of Vitti Hugo's excellent Le Miserable over the course of 2018. That's the podcast. In today's episode, we hear a little more about Fontaine. Enjoy! Le Miserable, Volume 1, Fontaine, Book the Third, in the year 1817, Chapter 3, Four and Fall. It is hard nowadays to picture to oneself what a pleasure trip of students and grisettes to the country was like 45 years ago. The suburbs of Paris are no longer the same. The physiognomy of what may be called circumparisian life has changed completely in the last half-century. Where there was the cuckoo, there is the railway car. Where there was a tender boat, there is now the steamboat. People speak of Fécamp nowadays as they spoke of Saint-Cloud in those days. The Paris of 1816 is a city which has France for its outskirts. The four couples conscientiously went through with all the country follies possible at that time. The vacation was beginning, and it was a warm, bright summer day. On the preceding day, Favorite, the only one who knew how to write, had written the following Ptolemoes in the name of the four. It is a good hour to emerge from happiness. That is why they rose at five o'clock in the morning. Then they went to Saint-Cloud by the coach, looked at the dry cascade, and exclaimed, This must be very beautiful when there is water. They breakfasted at the Tête Noire, where Castaing had not yet been. They treated themselves to a game of ring-throwing under the quincux of trees at the Grand Fountain. They ascended Diogenes' lantern, they gambled for macaroons at the roulette establishment of the Pont de Sèvres, picked bouquets at Pateau, bought reed pipes at Neuilly, ate apple tarts everywhere, and were perfectly happy. The young girls rustled and chattered like warblers escaped from their cage. It was a perfect delirium. From time to time they bestowed little taps on the young men. Machicinal intoxication of life. Adorable years. The wings of the dragonfly quiver. Oh, whoever you may be, do you not remember? Have you rambled through brushwood, holding aside branches on account of the charming head which is coming on behind you? Have you slid, laughing, down a slope all wet with rain, with a beloved woman holding your hand and crying, Ah, my new boots, what a state they're in! Let us say at once that that merry obstacle, a shower, was lacking in the case of this good-humoured party, although Feverite had said as they set out, with a magisterial and maternal tone. The slugs are crawling in the paths. A sign of rain, children. All four were madly pretty. A good old classic poet, then famous. A good fellow, who had an Eleanor, Monsieur le Chevalier de la Boisse, as he strolled that day beneath the chestnut trees of Saint Cloud, saw them pass about ten o'clock in the morning, and exclaimed, There is one too many of them, as he thought of the graces. Favorite, Blachevelle's friend, the one aged three and twenty, the old one, ran on in front under the great green boughs, jumped the ditches, stalked distractedly over bushes, and presided over this merrymaking with the spirit of a young female fawn. Zephine and Dahlia, whom chance had made beautiful in such a way that they set each other off when they were together, and completed each other, never left each other, more from an instinct of coquetry than from friendship and clinging to each other, they assumed English poses, 
the first keepsakes had just made their appearance. Melancholy was dawning for women, as later on, Byronism dawned for men, and the hair of the tender sex began to droop, dolefully. Zephine and Dahlia had their hair dressed in rolls. Listolia and Femwe, who were engaged in discussing their professors, explained to Fontaine the difference that existed between Monsieur Delvincourt and Monsieur Blondeau. Blachevelle seemed to have been created expressly to carry Feverich's single-bordered imitation India shawl of Turneau's manufacture on his arm on Sundays. Tolomoyes followed, dominating the group. He was very gay, but one felt the force of government in him. There was dictation in his joviality. His principal adornment was a pair of trousers of elephant-leg pattern of nankeen, with straps of braided copper wire. He carried a stout rattan, worth 200 francs, in his hand, and, as he treated himself to everything, a strange thing called a cigar in his mouth. Nothing was sacred to him. He smoked. That Tolomoyes is astounding, said the others, with veneration. What trousers! What energy! As for Fontaine, she was a joy to behold. Her splendid teeth had evidently received an office from God. Laughter. She preferred to carry her little hat of sewed straw, with its long white strings, in her hand, rather than on her head. Her thick blonde hair, which was inclined to wave, and which easily uncoiled, and which it was necessary to fasten up incessantly, seemed made for the flight of Galatea under the willows. Her rosy lips babbled enchantingly. The corners of her mouth, voluptuously turned up, as in the antique masks of Erigone, had an air of encouraging the audacious, but her long, shadowy lashes drooped discreetly over the jollity of the lower part of her face, as though to call a halt. There was something indescribably harmonious and striking about her entire dress. She wore a crown of mauve barège, little reddish-brown buskins, whose ribbons trace an X on her fine, white, open-work stockings, and that sort of muslin spencer, a Marseille invention, whose name, Canazou, a corruption of the words cans ut, pronounced after the fashion of the canabier, signifies fine weather, heat, and midday. The three others, less timid, as we have already said, wore no neck dresses without disguise, which in summer, beneath flower-adorned hats, are very graceful and enticing. But by the side of these audacious outfits, blonde Fontaine's canazou, with its transparencies, its indiscretion, and its reticence, concealing and displaying at one and the same time, seemed an alluring godsend of decency, in the famous court of love, presided over by the Vicomtesse de Set with the sea-green eyes, would, perhaps, have awarded the prize for coquetry to this canazou in the contest for the prize of modesty. The most ingenious is, at times, the wisest. This does happen. Brilliant of face, delicate of profile, with eyes of a deep blue, heavy lids, feet arched and small, wrists and ankles admirably formed, a white skin which here and there allowed the azure branching of the veins to be seen, joy, a cheek that was young and fresh, the robust throat of the Juno of Agina, a strong and supple nape of the neck, shoulders mottled as though by Costeau, with a voluptuous dimple in the middle, visible through the muslin, a gaiety cooled by dreaminess, sculptural and exquisite, 
such as Fontaine. Beneath these feminine adornments and these ribbons, one could divine a statue, and in that statue, a soul. Fontaine was beautiful without being too conscious of it. Those rare dreamers, mysterious priests of the beautiful who silently confront everything with perfection, would of course a glimpse in this little working woman, through the transparency of her Parisian grace, of the ancient sacred euphony. This daughter of the shadows was thoroughbred. She was beautiful in the two ways, style and rhythm. Style is the form of the ideal, rhythm is its movement. We have said that Fontaine was joy. She was also modesty. To an observer who studied her attentively, that which breathed from her athwart all the intoxication of her age, the season, and her love affair, was an invincible expression of reserve and modesty. She remained a little astonished. This chaste astonishment is the shade of difference which separates Psyche from Venus. Fontaine had the long, white, fine fingers of the Vestal Virgin who stirs the ashes of the sacred fire with a golden pin. Although she would have refused nothing to Ptolemyes, as we shall have more than ample opportunity to see, her face in repose was supremely virginal. A sort of serious and almost austere dignity suddenly overwhelmed her at certain times, and there was nothing more singular and disturbing than to see gaiety become so suddenly extinct there and meditation succeeded cheerfulness without any transition state. This sudden and sometimes severely accentuated gravity resembled the disdain of a goddess. Her brow, her nose, her chin, presented that equilibrium of outline which is quite distinct from equilibrium of proportion, and from which harmony of countenance results. In the very characteristic interval which separates the base of the nose from the upper lip, she had that imperceptible and charming fold, a mysterious sign of chastity which makes Barbarous fall in love with the Diana found in the treasures of Iconia. Love is a fault. So be it. Fontaine was innocence, floating high over fault. <laughs>